Groundhog Day, one of my favorite movies. It's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. That's a funny movie. It stars actor Bill Murray, and if you're familiar with it, he's stuck in a place called Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, home of the famous Groundhog Day celebration. And in this movie, because of his living proud and arrogantly and not taking other people into consideration, he is doomed to live February 2nd over and over and over again for the rest of his life. Every morning when he wakes up, it's Groundhog Day. And he goes through the same thing, meets the same people, has the same experiences over and over and over and over and over. The movie is very funny, very hilarious. And yet the movie is also tremendously sad. There's a point in the movie where Phil, Murray's character, gets so depressed that he commits suicide again and again and again and again, day after day after day after day, and yet he continues to wake up the next morning in the same place on the same day. And, of course, the cycle does get broken at the end of the movie. You have to have a happy ending, right? But it's a, uh, it, 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 it kind of demonstrates in an exaggerated way sometimes the frustration that all of us feel by the same old, same old of life. Are you ever frustrated by the mundane, the daily routine that never seems to end? One writer puts it this way, to be human is to be a creature, and to be a creature is to be finite. We are not God. We are not in control. But we avoid this reality by playing let's pretend. Let's pretend that if we get the promotion or see our church grow or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. Let's pretend that if we change jobs, we'll be happier and we won't experience the humdrum and ordinariness of life. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house, we'll be happier and never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end one relationship and start a new one, we won't ever feel trapped. Let's pretend that if we were married or if we weren't, we would be content Let's pretend that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. Let's pretend that if we get through this week's pile of washing and dirty diapers and shopping lists and school runs and busy evenings, next week we'll be quieter. Let's pretend we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free from weariness. I think this feeling of frustration and discontent is one of the reasons why we entertain ourselves in this culture more than ever before, it seems. Anytime we can escape into a book or into a movie or into a television show or into a video game or even into social media, it helps us to live our lives vicariously through other characters, through other people. Any time away from real-life responsibilities and relationships feels like a wonderful fantasy. 
And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying all those things are rubbish and you should never uh, entertain yourself. But we always come crashing back to reality, don't we? We finish the last chapter. The movie credits start scrolling. We run out of lives on our game. Or we get a headache from too much screen time. Then we can't sleep either. Anybody relate to this at all? Ecclesiastes, friends, is the dose of reality that we need to properly function as God's created humanity. It will wake us up like a cold shower in the morning. It will get our attention like a drill sergeant does his troops. It will tell us the truth like a judge in a courtroom. It will do all these things and more. It will change us. It will feed us. It will guide us because it is God's word. Last Sunday, we took a larger look, an overview of the book of Ecclesiastes. So go back and listen to that if you need to get caught up on the background to the book. But just a few items in review this morning, which appear in these first few verses in chapter 1. Notice verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And what we talked about last Sunday is that the writer of this book is reporting on a very important research project. He has set out to discover the meaning of life. And he set out to discover it by observing and experiencing everything he could possibly experience. Although it's debated, especially by today's scholars, I personally don't have a big problem accepting Solomon as the preacher, as the divinely inspired author of the wisdom content in this book. And I explained why I see it that way in last week's message. And Solomon is giving us, the preacher is giving us a no-holds-barred look at the meaning of life. And friends, there is no sugarcoating in this book. The main theme of the project, which bookends the book of Ecclesiastes, here in chapter 1 and verse 2, and also the very same words over in chapter 12 and verse 8, is very simple. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Literally, the word means breath or smoke. It should be understood as something that has no enduring worth. Meaningless is a good translation. Pointless. Frustrating. And this term is repeated 38 times in the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. And vanity of vanities is like the Old Testament phrase, holy of holies. It's a way of intensifying what it's trying to say. It's not just vanity, it's vanity of vanities. Solomon's making a point, do you think? Everything is completely, utterly meaningless. Now some of you are thinking to yourselves, yep, 
He's got it absolutely right. Others of you are sitting here thinking, this guy got out of the wrong side of the bed this morning. This is so miserable. Bear with me. Did you ever wonder why the wealthiest people in the world, the smartest people in the world, the funniest people in the world, the most popular people in the world, that many times they're the most depressed, the most fearful, the most addicted, the most miserable people in the world. Why does that happen? It happens, and you may not like this answer, but it is the answer. It happens because God made it that way. Do you remember Genesis 1 and 2? Everything that God had created in this world, he called what? Very good. It was literally paradise. Perfection. And yet, after the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, we have a big change on our planet, don't we? And it's called the curse. It changed everything. It affected the way that we work, the way that we interact with one another, even the way we would bear children. And it brought death into our world. Do you remember how Paul talks about this over in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, 21? He wrote this. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, this world has been subjected to futility, subjected to frustration, and it's part of the judgment of God. It's part of the curse because of the sin of men and women. And no one will escape this frustration until God comes back makes things right, creates a new heaven and a new earth in the future. That's why life is frustrating, futile, pointless, meaningless, vanity, because the Creator made it that way. Not originally, but in response to our sin. So don't think, as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, don't think that God has lost control. Don't think that God is absent. Don't think that God is uncaring. What we're seeing in the book of Ecclesiastes is we are getting the refreshing honesty of wisdom. And that's why I think we're going to end up loving Ecclesiastes here at Heather Hills. And I want to give you three reasons why I think we're going to love it. We're going to love Ecclesiastes first because it is reflective. It's not childishly simplistic. It's not superficial. 
It's deeply thoughtful about life and relationships. It's deep reflection on our lives. I think we're going to love this book because it's reflective. Second, because it's realistic. Even for those of us who are following Jesus, and we have the hope of eternal life, and the hope of heaven, and we have the Holy Spirit, and it changes everything. We'll get to all that later. But even for those of us who are following Jesus, we have to live in this world that's under the curse. And the frustration affects us, just like it affects those that are without Christ. We're all living under this curse. And so Ecclesiastes is going to push back against those in our world who would teach what we call a prosperity theology that is so prominent that pretends, pretends that following Jesus will make your life easy and simple and healthy and wealthy. Anyone who tells you that is giving you folly, not wisdom. This book is going to talk about life the way it really is. Third, I think the book of Ecclesiastes can be evangelistic. This book analyzes the world that we live in with such depth and such accuracy and such wisdom. I think you're going to find that this helps to equip us as Christians to speak better to non-Christians about life the way it really is, and the hope that they can find in Christ as a result. So, if you're a Christian here this morning, don't reject the teaching of Ecclesiastes. By the way, it's part of the Old Testament. It's part of the Holy Scriptures. Jesus wants you to hear this. If you're going to cope with life in God's world, you need to listen and learn from the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. After all, remember where the preacher got his wisdom from. According to chapter 12 and verse 11 that we looked at last week, he got it from the one shepherd. Remember that? With a capital S, the Lord himself. Now there's one other background point that I want to make before we move into the rest of our text this morning. And it's the meaning of the little phrase, under the sun, which we see first here in chapter 1 and verse 3. It's going to show up a lot in this book. This is a reference to what takes place on planet Earth. But it's more than that. It, it's a very limited way of viewing what takes place here and now. We might call it a horizontal view only looking at life from our human-to-human perspective, point of view. Now, that, of course, is not the only point of view that exists in the world. As Christians, knowing that all of the Scriptures, Jesus said this himself in Luke 24, all of the Scriptures point to who? Him. We want to see not only the way things are under the sun, but also the way things can be in Christ. 
One author puts it this way. The preacher wants to point out what is vain in order for us to discover what isn't. So just remember, when you see that phrase, under the sun, which you will about 30 times in this book, it is the realistic view of every human on this planet, but not the only one that matters. I'll try to demonstrate this for you in a few moments. As we turn our attention now to verses 3 through 11, one of the great challenges as pastors that we are facing each week in preparing these messages is how to analyze this book properly. It is very challenging. It's not like a gospel. It's not like Romans. It's not even like Isaiah. This is new territory for a lot of us. And each of us might approach a text a little differently. And that's okay. But one thing we have noticed collectively is that throughout this book, we find alternating sections of observations and instructions. The first observation section starts here, and it goes all the way to the end of chapter 4. And in these chapters, Solomon is going to address all kinds of different topics. You'll hear one this morning. You'll hear another one next Sunday. You'll hear another one the Sunday after that. He's going to use many statements like, I saw or I know. He's talking about his observations, this study that he did for the meaning of life. Then when we get into the instruction sections, the first one in chapter 5, the, the Bible will actually give us commands to follow. So here's all these observations about life, and here's what we need to do as a result. All right, let's jump in. Two main points this morning. You're like, what, you're just starting now? Don't worry. I might even finish early. Point number one, under the sun, your work is in vain. Under the sun, your work is in vain. I actually want to move somewhat quickly through this opening poem because there's a repeated theme that's running all through these verses, and I think you'll pick it up pretty quickly. The first subject that Solomon's going to consider in his research report here, is toil or work. Notice verse 3. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, so what do you think you are actually achieving in all that work that you're doing? Whether you're at home or in an office or at school, how long are you working each week? 30 hours, 50 hours, 100 hours? What are you actually achieving then through your work? The next verse. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Do you really think the world is going to be different after this generation? Do you really think that the world's going to be different? Hint, it's not. Verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. 
In other words, day after day, kind of like Groundhog Day, right? Day after day, the sun does the same thing, regardless of what we do. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. So we scurry around, we rush around, we're trying to do all these things, and the wind just blows round and round and round and round, no matter what we're doing. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The water in the weather system is just circular. Round and round and round. The streams flow to the oceans. Evaporation. Rain. The streams flow to the oceans. Evaporation. Rain. Just keeps going on and on and on. No matter what happens to you. No matter what you're doing. Verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. Do you feel tired? Anybody feel tired this morning? Anybody need a vacation? And then when you get back, anybody need a vacation from your vacation? Yeah. Anybody ever feel weary? You know why? Life is wearying. Well, take my word for it. Solomon says it. All things are full of weariness. You wonder why you're tired all the time? Because everything is tiresome all the time. It's the way it's made. So now he turns to the world of human nature, human life. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. It was here before our time, Solomon says. You might say, what about the internet? What about the smartphone? That's kind of a new thing, isn't it? Well, for sure we would say technology is advancing, wouldn't we? crazy. It's advancing at a crazy rate. But what really is the internet other than jungle drums on a bigger scale? You know, we used to communicate with drums from one village to another or smoke from fires and towers. And somebody came along, we invented the telegraph and the telephone. Now there's the internet hundred years from now, there will be something bigger and faster than all of that. But it's not really fundamentally different. Just another way of communicating with one another. Another way of passing on information. Nothing really new. Not fundamentally different. What's so earth-shattering about that then? All these technological, technological advances we're making. Do you, really, do you really think they're making a difference? Do you think you're making a difference? Verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. How much do you know about the people who lived in your house before you? How much do you know about your great-great-grandparents? 
your grandparents, you know, most of us, we knew them face to face. We loved them. How about their parents? You remember your great-grandparents? A few of us probably have some brief, distant memories of them. How about your great-great-grandparents? If you have a family tree or Ancestry.com or something like that, you may know their name. You might find out a few facts about them, but no one's going to remember us. One of you might become president someday. They might remember him for a while or her. But the rest of us, no one's going to remember us 100 years from now. What is the writer saying? We're insignificant. We're creatures. People talk like they're going to make a difference. Make a change. Start something new. The preacher says, no, you won't. Life is pointless. What's the point of living if you're not going to make any difference in the world you live in? Here's the point. We will never find our meaning in this life, in our work. We're like the proverbial hamster in the wheel. Lots of running, lots of activity, lots of hours and months and years, but we never really arrive at any kind of ultimate destination. An author writes, you punch in and punch out over and over till you punch out for the last time. And when you retire, your company will throw you a party, give you a gift with a plaque, maybe, and the next day, somebody else will replace you. Eventually, you'll be forgotten. Pointless, vanity, smoke. Nothing's really changed. What about God? Where is God? He's not even mentioned in these opening 11 verses. He's not there. Look for yourself. All right, ready for our final song and benediction? Call the praise team up here? Not me either. Not me either. I'm not ready for that. Not yet. There's reality under the sun. And there's reality under the sun. S-O-N. This is where the preacher is pointing us to. And this is our second point. Under the sun. S-O-N. Your work is not in vain. Remember the question Solomon asked in verse 3? What does a man gain? Jesus asked a similar question in Matthew 16. Do you remember it? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Solomon asks, what you gain from working? Jesus takes it a step further, doesn't he? Suppose you gained it all. Suppose you gained the whole world, but you lost your soul. What did you really gain? Nothing. Vanity. 
This is why Jesus instructs us in Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if your work in this life Under the sun, S-U-N, is all about gaining earthly treasures. Ultimately, Solomon is absolutely right. They profit you nothing. You can't take any of them into eternity when you die. But if we gain heavenly treasures through our work, heavenly treasures through our work, They will be there when we get there. Certainly, we want to work to provide for our families, to provide for those who are in need. This is a good work. This is an obedient work to the Lord. But if our goal in life is simply to accumulate wealth and pleasure and status and knowledge and reputation, we actually end up gaining nothing. Here's how Paul put the same idea very directly in 1 Corinthians 15, last verse of the chapter. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, listen to this, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Did you hear that? Under the sun, S-U-N, your work is in vain. And people feel that frustration every day of their lives. In the Lord, under the sun, S-O-N, your work is not in vain. Big difference, isn't there? What is the work of the Lord? Maybe Peter summed it up best at the end of his epistle. Second Peter, the very last verse, says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Keep making progress in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. That means being dedicated to meditating and studying his word. Are you doing that? That means being faithful to fight against sin and pursue holiness. Are you doing that? That means practicing the one another's of the New Testament and loving your brothers and sisters and your neighbors as yourself. Are you doing that? That means worshiping the Lord regularly in a community of believers the way you're supposed to grow. Are you doing that? That means sharing the good news with those who are lost. Are you doing that? It means being devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Are you doing that? Growing in all these areas that the Word tells us to. Little by little. Day by day. 
That's the work that gives meaning to life in a frustrating and meaningless world. I'll ask the praise team now to return to the front for our final song as they're coming. I want to be very clear about what I've said this morning from chapter 1. In this world, under the curse, our work, even though we may think we're making a difference, even though we might think we're advancing in our careers, it's all meaningless. One day we will be replaced. One day we will be forgotten. All of us. And the sun will continue to rise and set and rise and set and rise and set without us. But in Christ, we can approach life with a very different viewpoint than just under the sun. Certainly, we will still live in a world under the curse. And we have to deal with those frustrations. They'll still affect our lives. But we can be involved in work that matters, not only in this life, but for all eternity. And that is only possible because Jesus rescues us from the curse. He is our true escape. Not the TV shows we watch, not the video games we play, not the social media that we, that we, whatever we do with that. He is our true escape. He is our true salvation. The work that we do for his kingdom, no matter where we are at work, the work we do for his kingdom makes a real difference and lays up eternal treasure. And one day, friends, the curse will be reversed. The curse will be lifted when Jesus makes a new heaven and a new earth. And even until then, as we spin our wheels like the hamster, making all kinds of activity and busyness for ourselves, the reality of life in Jesus brings us joy in a world that doesn't even know the meaning of the word. It brings us joy. So go out and tell people that this week. Tell them you understand why they're frustrated. You understand why they're tired. You understand why they're lonely. You understand why they're depressed. Because they live under the sun like we do. But there's another way. A better way the only way, and it's through Jesus. He makes all the difference.